0: I think we are in this world of art because we, we need it. We know we need it. Pine.
1: Copper Lime. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 29th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the Internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. Happy end to 2019, print friends! It has been a beautiful 12 months for Pine Copper Lime, and I want to thank each and every one of you who helped make this community grow this year. Thank you for listening, thank you for sharing, thank you for subscribing, rating, reviewing, making your friends listen in the studio, or if you just sent me a kind DM. The PCL by the numbers for this year wrap-up includes 23,500 Instagram followers, 29 episodes, 5 exhibition walkthroughs, 22 artists on the Pine Copper Lime Online Gallery, 28,000 listens on SoundCloud alone, and 14 stunning and generous patrons over on Patreon. Thank you all from the bottom of my inky little heart, printmaking forever, shun the non-believers, join the party. And I couldn't think of a better way to end the year than with my guest today, Bernard DeRoyt. Bernard has been a major supporter of fine copper lime since the beginning and is a champion for contemporary printmaking. He is the owner of Mesh Art Gallery in Chicago, which represents contemporary printmakers from around the world. Bernard grew up in Brussels and studied art history through his master's degree before moving to Chicago, where he's been in the print trade there since 1998. He has an unbridled enthusiasm for works on paper which is nothing short of a delight to experience. I'm so looking forward to sharing this episode with you, and be sure to check out the wonderful artist represented by Mesh Art Gallery. I will have a link in the show notes to Mesh's website and their Instagram. So sit back, relax, and prepare to catch that collecting bug with Bernard de Reut. Hi Bernard, how's it going?
0: Good, hi Miranda, how are you? I'm really good, I'm
1: good. How are things in Chicago?
0: Things are well. Winter came today. Oh, really? <laughs> we had a big, a big snow dump, and for early November, that's kind of unusual.
1: Oh, wow! Yeah, because a Chicago winter is um, is no laughing matter usually, right? Hey,
0: no, that's right. You do have to uh, be prepared for it. Although it's uh, it's always a little bit of a surprise, and it sometimes comes early, sometimes late, but. This year, it came early. We already had during Halloween. We had uh, we had snow, and uh, this year uh, again early November, we're we're kind of in the thick of it already. So,
1: wow. all right, yep. we'll hunker down, changing yeah. our ways, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> putting on the coat. Yeah, absolutely. I've known you for a few years. You know, mostly through my time at Davidson when we were both print dealers in the brick-and-mortar print world, print fair world, but I would love for you to give a little introduction for yourself of the kind of the who you are, where you are, and what you do questions. Absolutely, yeah.
0: Well, glad to introduce myself. Thank you for the question. I go by the name of Bernard de in the United States, although I was born uh, and raised in Brussels, Belgium, so... For those listeners who uh, speak French, the the name is Bernard de Watt. That's what I grew up calling <laughs> myself. Um, and uh, I'm so I'm an immigrant to the United States. I, I moved to the United States in 1998 after my studies. I studied uh, in Belgium and in Germany, studied art history and got a master's in art history. And then moved here uh, following my wife. She and I met in uh, Germany. She was my girlfriend then, Mm -hmm. uh, but I was to the United States in in 1998 because she was starting medical school here. So I figured if we were going to try to make it work together, I was going to have to be here. And I stayed. And so I grew up speaking French uh, at home, but uh, going to school in Dutch, in Flemish. And so that kind of turned my attention towards the Germanic world. I learned German and then English, which brought me to Germany for a year, which is where I met my wife. And then... Brought me to the United States eventually, and to to become more of an English speaker. <laughs>
1: these yeah, days. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, how long have you have you both been in Chicago? Then,
0: so my wife is actually from here. She's her her folks are German immigrants. Uh, I've been here since 1998, so it's uh, it's approaching that point in my life as I'm I'm, I'm in my mid 40s, where I'm almost here as long as I. I, I was in in Belgium yeah. before I moved here, um, and actually became an American citizen last year. Oh, so, congrats! Uh, that was a, <laughs> a momentous occasion. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so yeah, I arrived in in uh, in the fall of 1998 um, looking for work, which I found, <laughs> and I stayed. <laughs>
1: yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So you're saying how you grew up in Brussels. Was art a big part of your life? I mean, I know that all of those incredible Northern Europe art museums, of course, someone growing up from on the West Coast of America would, would grow up with quite a bit of envy for someone who had, you know, the Ghent altarpiece down the road. But um, <laughs> yeah, tell That's me a little right. bit. That's right, Van Eyck, of...
0: not far. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not far off, Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No, we we grew up. Well, it's interesting because it it also gets kind of. Reminds me of the fact that something stick with some people and not with others. Mm. We definitely grew up in a house where art was was important. Uh, our our parents. So I have two sisters uh, who have not at all turned their attention towards the yeah. art world. But my dad's family was very much versed in the arts, and many of my cousins are actually in the arts in various capacities. So it's definitely something that's sort of in our in our DNA. I would say. But art came to me pretty early in life. Uh, my folks would basically travel with us—not um, very far, but whether it be within, you know, train distance or or having to take an airplane when we got a little bit older, we traveled a lot throughout Europe, and it was generally for cultural destinations. Mm. So whenever we travel, whether it was the village church or the the large museum uh, that we visited, that was very much the the goal of the visit. So the first visits were definitely close by in Belgium mostly. My parents didn't have a car until I was about 11 or 12, so mm. it was train distances mostly, in the Netherlands, northern, northern France, Belgium, Germany. But um, we did make it to uh, Italy when I was probably oh, six or seven, and the first visit we made was in Florence, and we ended up going back as a family to Florence oh, at least five or six times over the years. I remember those visits vividly and... Mm. Um, and the visits through the to the Uffizi when I was young was yeah. were just were just amazing. Um, my parents had kind of found this little pension on the hill in the hills outside of Florence in, in a little town called Fiesole. And it was just unbelievably scenic. You just looked down onto onto Florence uh in the mornings as you were having breakfast on the terrace and then mm. you would just make your way down by bus to Florence. And I remember we were like I said, I must have been six or seven. And the deal was, if we behaved for a week in Florence, we would get a week of coast uh, vacation, like a beach vacation afterwards, <laughs> which we got. We never went back to the, to the coast ever after that. We always went to Florence. To Florence. We just loved it so well. It was just amazing. Uh, it was definitely not as overrun with tourists yeah. back then as it is now. Yeah. Uh, and so I have vivid memories of standing in the, in the Uffizi in front of these amazing Panels and canvases. I mean, you know, you stand in front of the Birth of Venus by Mm -hmm. Botticelli as a six or seven year old. If you're paying attention, it will wow you. It just, and it just did. And so it stuck with me. And yeah, from a young age, art was part of it.
1: Absolutely. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I remember going to Uffizi maybe for the first time 10 years ago. And I Mm -hmm. will never forget just turning around the corner and there she is and and the scale of it and the the colors and the fact that you know at that point I was in my 20s and so it's already an iconic image and to just turn a corner and there she is facing you it's it's it stops you in your tracks it's an incredible experience
0: yeah 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 and that's what it is i think people tend to forget that art is a physical experience mm-hmm. you mentioned the scale of botticelli there's no question about that at an, at an early age, I got interested in mosaics. And so, for instance, I had known of the Byzantine mosaics in Ravenna from from probably really my early teens. And I've only seen them in books, uh, or had, I had only seen them in books for many, many years. And then for my 40th birthday, I managed to, literally on my birthday, make it to Ravenna with my family uh. and see these mosaics firsthand. And it nothing prepares you for it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how well you know these images when you see the emperor and the empress in the flesh, so to speak, yeah. uh, you know, peering down at you, whatever it is, 14 or 1500 years after they were placed there, there's something un- undescribable. You have to stand there to understand them. And so that's absolutely, those experiences are unique.
1: I find it sort of endlessly fascinating, this world that we live in now where the internet makes art seem so accessible And it is in a lot of ways, but of course, there's no replacement for the physical experience, the corporeal in your bones, you know, being standing in Giotto's Cathedral or standing in front of the birth of Venus or seeing a mosaic or when I, you know, finally made it to seeing some of Dier's paintings and works in person when I was in Germany. It's just you have to kind of bend to admitting about that physical and spiritual side of art when you have those experiences, and it's incredible.
0: Absolutely. No, I I, I mean, one of the most amazing moments of the last few years for me was standing, you mentioned Dürer, standing in front of his self-portrait. It Yeah, is basically just a tad under life size, and it hangs at eye level in Vienna. And if you walk there... There's no glass in front of it. There's mm-hmm. no encasement. You get to stand there in front of Dürer who looks at you like, yeah. he, like, like, like he, he would. <laughs> right. And, and 500 years have passed, and yet he hasn't aged a day, and he looks you straight in the eye. You get to look him straight in the eye. You can look at that on your phone all you want, all day. It will never be the same as when you get to stand there for a minute by yourself, like staring at him. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's absolutely unique. So yeah. we should encourage people
1: to do that. <laughs> <laughs> See art for 10. Yes. drop the phone. Yeah. <laughs> 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 absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's something that I hope, I, I can't imagine it getting lost as technology marches forward, but it's definitely something that I hope doesn't just because it's, it's so, it's so necessary. So you mentioned going to Florence and getting those experiences. How did you come to become specifically interested in prints and works on paper? I mean, as well as mosaics and paintings. I don't think any of us can, can fully cut off, you know, all media, of course.
0: That's true, yeah. And I think that's that's one of those things that I think all of us who, who are nourished by art have to remember is that we shouldn't cut ourselves off. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I go back to where, where, where it started for me. And I mentioned mosaics, but I remember uh, being interested in early Asian street arts, and that was just probably because I was a teen- teenage boy, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and graffiti arts were kind of rising. I remember going to dance performances when I was when I was young, and it, and they spoke to me. And nobody, I probably even I probably can't tell why they spoke to me, uh, but I think that's something we should encourage at all times. Is to not be sort of in an artistic ghetto, whatever our perspective mm-hmm. is. Just always stay open-minded. Um, but it's true that professionally, paper has been has been my world, and I, I think it was truly a combination of serendipity and then something that echoed or that spoke to me, echoed inside of me. Uh, so when I came to the United States in 1988, um, within days, literally, I met Richard Armstrong, who was the uh, owner and uh, and director of Richard Reed Armstrong Fine Arts. And so I started working for him in the fall of 1998, and I did until he retired and sold the business to me. And that was a paper dealership. I mean, he was a, <laughs> a rag lover, as mm-hmm. we call ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, he really only sold paper, uh, prints, and a little bit of drawings. And so I think that was sort of an opportunity for me, obviously. I mean, I needed a job. I needed the income. Um, but he was extremely collegial with me. He showed me anything he knew anything about. He introduced me to everybody he knew, and he gave me a great degree of freedom to try just about anything as long as it didn't bankrupt him. (laughs) And so um, it really gave me the opportunity to to experience art firsthand in all kinds of ways, the personal connections, the, the connection to the art, I think what spoke to me when it came to paper was that objectual quality that we discussed earlier today. I kind of dig that um, it's a term from, from Catholicism, and I don't mean anything religious by it, but it, it's, an, it's an incarnate quality. It takes shape into an embodiment, something that's physical. You can hold it. You can, it has weight. Paper is wonderful that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, why do people go to stores to buy, to buy clothes? Because they want to put their hands on them. Well, most paper is cotton. It's not very different. Mm-hmm. You get to pick it up. You get to flip it over. If it's older, you get to smell it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's large, you get to feel awkward with it in your hands. All these things are part of the experience. And so that spoke to me readily. As soon as I discovered paper, which I truly didn't know before I worked for Richard Armstrong, it was easy. It was natural. It felt very, very uh, comfortable to have these works in, in, my, in my vicinity.
1: Mm, yeah, I love that. And it it reminds me a bit of my own journey in that I, I studied prints in my master's degree, but it wasn't until I came to Davidson that I was just completely blown away by the physical experience because we had a print collection at the University of Arizona, which, of course, I studied. But it's such, in that situation, it's so formal. Things are laid out for you. Mm -hmm. You only have a little bit of time. You've got the white gloves and the magnifier. And it's just completely different than the experience you get to have in a gallery setting where you are touching the work. And I think it took me almost 18 months or two years to get over just that feeling of being almost like this wasn't allowed because I had spent so much time.
0: Great, the great taboo. Exactly. Don't pick it up. Don't pick
1: it up. Don't touch it. I had spent so much time in graduate school looking at the reproductions, zooming in on, you know, various great museums websites with their uh, online digitally to look at all the details in a Bruchel and something like that. But it's that physicality that you get when you are in a gallery and or when you own a print, when it is yours and you can it is it is sort of your your ward and now you're responsible for taking care of it. It's it's totally different. And, and like you said, just a, a beautiful aspect of works on paper is that that intimacy and the physicality that they have that. Yeah, An oil painting, it's just, it's going to be completely different, the experience with an oil painting Absolutely. or sculpture. Yeah,
0: Yeah. yeah no, and I, I don't know if you remember this from your dealing days. I always, I mean, I always try to explain to people that they should pick it up, that mm-hmm. there shouldn't be a physical connection, that in the end, that's very much part of it. And then, especially people who became more regular buyers, I would always tell them a few things could like not go in frames. Like mm-hmm. keep them in a mat or keep them even loose in a portfolio because the truth is, through their history, most prints were not in frames, were not even matted. Right. Uh, people pulled out a portfolio and you, you in the same way as you'd po- po- pull a, a book off your shelf to, to look at or to read or to share with a visitor, you did the same with the print. You'd tell them, have you seen this impression of Manet's Olympia? Mm-hmm. And you'd pull out a portfolio and pull out a sheet and you would pass the sheet around. That's one of those joys that I think people who put everything in frames forget is really very much part of it. And because prints can be very inexpensive, it's very easy to own a couple of sheets of paper that you keep, you know, next to your couch Mm -hmm. to pull up when the mood strikes.
1: Yeah. Come up and see my etchings. Yeah. (laughs) That's right.
0: (laughs) That's right. Exactly. No innuendo at all. No,
1: no. (laughs) Um, And... Yeah, and that kind of, but that you know, I said as a joke, but also that you know, the intimacy of the viewing. I think, particularly when you look at historically, the way that prints had that ability because they could be transferred and hidden easily. The subversiveness that you can find in Mm -hmm. prints when you're looking at yeah, that that history of them is some of the really fascinating stuff, um, for no, sure. No, that's absolutely
0: right. Is You can say things in print that you could never say in painting. Mm-hmm. You could, whether it was commentary on religious matters, or it was something that was erotic, or mm-hmm. whatever else you wanted to say that couldn't be spoken to a wider audience, you could say to a small, intimate audience of of, uh, pap- of paper people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they would be willing to take that home and tuck it away for like-minded people to share with, but uh, they wouldn't have put it on, you know, uh, in oil on
1: their wall. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I it, that separation that the framing has, I feel like it's this 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 great hurdle that I've yet to come up with a solution to when it comes to works on paper is the, you know, if they're going to be on display, they on the wall, you know, to protect mm-hmm. them, they they sh- really should be behind glass particularly yeah. as people live in smaller apartments. And so your living mm-hmm. room is attached to your kitchen. And so if you're cooking with oil yeah. or something like that, it's
0: it, yeah, is going yeah. to,
1: it would affect that paper. But yet there's that separation that is kind of a bummer.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's also why, honestly, people have an easier time understanding oil painting than prints. The truth is, in an oil painting, generally speaking, you can just hang it on your wall. You mm-hmm. might not even need to have a frame. you could just leave it canvas and all, so I think that objectual quality is easier to fathom for most people and easier to enjoy. Um, but it shouldn't detract us from telling people to collect prints and mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. not put everything in frames.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that I think there's also something really special about when you do have a portfolio, or you have flat files, something special about setting aside a particular moment to view the work
0: because when
1: something's on your wall, no matter how much you love it, you'll stop seeing it after a while.
0: Yeah. You do become immune to an image. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is why one of the things I always encourage people to do is, you know, move your art around and rotate it because it won't just sort of blend into the background then when you do have work framed, but also, you know, saying, all right, it's Friday night. I'm gonna pour myself a glass of wine, and I'm gonna look at my prints. That is going to be an experience, and the the joy and the satisfaction that you get from it is going to be completely different from glancing at something out of the corner of your eye as you're rushing out the door in the morning.
0: Oh, absolutely, and it, I mean, and, and I'm sure we'll touch on this as we as we progress in the conversation. But the t- truth is, if the eye doesn't wander a little bit in an image, it really is not doing much for you. I mean there's no question that having decor, having things that are pleasing to the eye while you glance at them is definitely part of living with art. Yeah. But the truth is we want something that transcends a little bit of that immedi- that immediacy where you get something else out of it. Either you find or there's an emotion that comes with it or there's meaning that you hadn't seen in the past or there's associations to new aspects of your life that are echoed in the work of art. Those things you cannot grasp in a in a flashing moment. You mm-hmm. have to give it a little bit of time. Like anything else in, yeah. <laughs> of value in life. It takes time. Yeah. It just does.
1: I often think about trying to explain that to people in terms of the time that an artist put into creating a piece. And of course you well, Oh yeah, that's
0: interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. because yeah, it's not and obviously and even then, you know, it's not just that, that finished piece that you're seeing. There's all of the preliminary drawings. There's the things that didn't mm-hmm. work. There's all of the training. And so they finally have come up with something that not only they have decided needs to be in the world, but in the case of Prince, they've decided needs to be additioned often in most in most cases. And so they've taken the time to do this and they've put a lot of their time and energy into it. How much time and energy are you putting into receiving it? and
0: yeah,
1: yeah and and that that there's something to that i think there's so much behind even something that maybe be a more traditional landscape that i think people sometimes can look at and be like oh i get it yeah it's some trees and it's like well like there was a lot of time that went into this maybe just take another breath and see what you can yep. see <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah and enjoy the and i mean and enjoy line enjoy uh, juxtaposition of color enjoy contrast these things can speak to you in ways that are deeper than their immediacy. If anything, they give it a little bit of time for your mind to rest, which mm-hmm. is not a bad, bad thing in our contemporary world, considering how busy and, and frenetic it can be. So,
1: And it, I think it invites us also to use our intuition, and that's something that can make people a little bit uncomfortable sometimes.
0: I guess that's true. Yeah, there's a little bit of subconsciousness that's less, Fallible to some of us. That's
1: true. Well, I think we're just we, we live in a very analytical world mm-hmm. where we're asked to collect information, make a decision based on the information that you've collected all the time. You know, whether you're you're looking for your next vacuum to buy or the next person that you're gonna vote for. This is what we do. And and because of all the information that we have, we do it more and more and Art, I think, asks people to have an instinctual response to something. And it can be difficult sometimes to get people to allow themselves to trust that.
0: Yeah, to put their guard down and just accept they like something, Mm -hmm. even if they can't articulate it.
1: Yeah, Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly, yeah. And so that was one of the interesting things working as a dealer, when people would say, oh, I don't know anything about art. And I would kind of be like, well... You don't need to. You just need to know if you like it or
0: not. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> it's a good place to start, at
1: least. <laughs> at least, yeah, exactly, exactly. When this, Yeah, you'd use it kind of to get over that hump of the this isn't for me dialogue that someone might have in their head. Yep. So, yeah, so you were mentioning how you had just really kind of landed on the shores of Chicago, got immediately started at Armstrong Fine Art, eventually took that business... But you also have a fairly new venture as well in Mesh Art Gallery, and I'd love to—I'd love to hear you talk about that process and your motivations and ideas behind that, and what Mesh is and where people can find it. Yeah,
0: no, it's true. Uh, so Mesh Art Gallery is definitely a newer venture. We, you know, I started it about a, a little over a year ago. Uh, it sort of is a brainchild that came to me maybe a couple of years ago, but it took me a, a solid like nine months, to give it shape. But it's something that goes back, actually, to the beginnings of my my activity in the, in the world of prints. When I started working for uh, Richard Armstrong, he mostly worked with secondary market material, but he did have a little bit of contemporary art um, in his inventory, the reason being that he did quite a few shows. I mean, there were years where we, we were on the road, like 120, 140 days of the year either at shows or coming mm-hmm. back from shows and so honestly keeping inventory keeping stock was was hard we were selling art so fast so having contemporary art also enabled us to diversify but also enabled us to more quickly have new material and so we mostly worked through intermediaries other galleries who had contacts with artists he wasn't all that interested in dealing with artists and so he also you know I mean it's pretty mundane, but he left money on the table. He basically would give intermediaries money to give him artwork that he could have sourced himself and so very early on, um, we started building reports with contemporary artists, and that was sort of one of my main early missions because I spoke other languages French artists and Dutch artist and German artists that he wanted to approach I could speak to, so which he couldn't mm-hmm. <laughs> and so <Yeah. laughs> um, and so we uh, we, we we proceeded. We basically made appointments with artists, uh, mostly in France, but also in, in the Netherlands and in Germany, to s- discuss having their work to sell. And so we, we did that. Uh, so Richard Reed Armstrong Fine Art, which became Armstrong Fine Art, sold contemporary prints alongside older material from around the time when I, when I came on uh, until probably about 2012, 2013. I had to give up that part of my business, sort of my dealings. Uh, around that time just because I'm a father of two and my kids were really taking uh, taking up a lot Mm -hmm. of my time. And so it was just not fair to the artist I was trying to represent. I just didn't have enough time for it. And so it's really only about, like I said, about a couple years ago that I realized there was a little more daylight starting to come back into my professional (laughs) life and kids were growing up and I had more time to do what I wanted to do. But also I missed it. I missed that rapport to contemporary artists and to being in that primary market, the discovery of the new image, something that didn't exist and now it does. And so that brought me back to it, having the time for it, but also having sort of the the personal inclination for it. But it was one of those, I mean, because the art market has changed a lot, it was also a matter of finding sort of the right perspective for me. I wanted it to be meaningful to me, but also to the people I worked with. And so one of the early memories of seeing Artists at work. And actually, I probably I I wrote this up when I when I sort of made a mission statement for for Mesh Art Gallery. And so if if you go if you go to the Mesh Art Gallery website, you probably can read it better than I can say it. I can probably not say it as eloquently as I wrote it.
1: But it, it
0: was it was the, the this realization you'd walk into people's studios i remember for instance this this artist who's still a, still active but mostly as a painter these days this is a printmaker by the name of francois he lived on a on a small street uh, in the sixth only small in paris and we climbed up to the fifth floor to i mean what is basically servants quarters where he had a studio mm-hmm. and between the three of us standing in a studio you you could barely turn without elbowing the other. I mean, that's how, t- how tight the space was. And yet, in that space for two or three decades, he had created these m- masterful little etchings that were, you know, even when they were six by eight, felt like massively expensive. They were these worlds mm-hmm. of wonder. Um, and I just remember thinking, here's this man who, Every day of his life climbs up, you know, from, from his apartment a few floors down and comes and cloisters himself for 6, 8, 10, 12 hours of the day to create these images all by his lonesome, all, all by himself. The world is, you know, going on, you know, outside and he has to mm-hmm. motivate to do this, have the inventiveness, have the trust in his own capacity and then toil, like work at this uh, day in, day out. And it felt so lonely mm-hmm. as a pursuit. I realized sort of what my role, our role was when we visited him. We were there to enable him to do this. He was willing to put that time, that effort, that that passion into it every day of his life. But he needed people to bring that art to the world. It just needed to be out there so he could living and keep doing it. And so... That spoke to me immensely, and that's sort of where I, that's what I circled back to when I started thinking mm-hmm. about mesh. I really only work with independent artists, people who basically work on their own terms, whatever those might be. But I tend to have not gravitated all that much to people who are in in very collaborative realities and maybe that says something about about me. <laughs> 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 and it's not that I disregard that process. A lot of printmaking can only be made in uh, in collaborative effort, and, and Mesh does show people who work in collaborative effort. Uh, for instance, we work with uh, Pine Ferroda, which is a, a, a sort of consortium of what was five, now four, and then three people uh, making prints together. Mm. But I like the concept of people who just, Put their own, I guess, put their own effort in their own work um, fairly independently, and so that's really the sort of the impetus of going back to, to, uh, to dealing in contemporary artists, wanting to give those quiet voices um, a stage, I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I love what you were saying about when you develop these professional and personal relationships with some of these artists and you see what goes into the making Mm -hmm. it's it's so stunning and really we just see these finished products and those long hours spent alone in the studio it's it's really an incredible undertaking and what it makes me think of is when people talk about this podcast, when I get messages from people, one of the things that I love hearing the most is that they say it makes me feel less alone mm-hmm. when I'm in the studio, yeah, because I'm here talking to an, a nice person somewhere out there in the world who's into prints, who loves prints, and so through the through the magic of technology, someone who's doing that toiling can feel like they're in on a conversation with someone who loves just what they love.
0: No, and that's what it is. I mean, we all we all have different characters and there are people who do well in surroundings that are more that are busier or more collaborative, but there's mm-hmm. there are many of us who need we need our our solitude to do some of our best work. And I agree. I think what you bring to people who thrive in that solitude is that within the parameters that they've set for themselves, you bring a little bit of life that they would mm-hmm. that yeah that animates their day and breaks a little bit of that monotony or that solitude, which of course gets to us all <laughs> a little <laughs> bit of the outside world, this is all uh, a world of good
1: yeah, totally, so apart from what you're saying about how you know you love being that kind of voice to those people, what else do you look for? with artists that you represent. We touched on it a little bit earlier about that, like needing a little something more, a piece that kind of keeps giving as you keep looking. But just in general, I'd love to hear how that happens. What's that process like for you?
0: I guess I go from two simple concepts there's, there's always this expression, I forget how it goes, but uh, the 10% of inspiration, 90% of perspiration when it comes to uh, mm-hmm. to uh, great things in life or art in particular. I would say I look for, I very much look for both. I think that's a little bit of a difficulty for people who look at prints to step away from technique. I mean, technique is obviously what is necessary. It's a necessary evil to get to a result. But I do look for both. I look for people who basically put amazing quality in their work. And so that tends to be time. It tends to be dedication to techniques that are not straightforward or complicated. But I think it's a combination of the two that I look for. I look for people who tell you a story you haven't seen told that way before, but also do it with Technical skill that shows the dedication to making sure that as they are telling you that story, it's done with excellence. And so, I guess I, I tend to call my my attraction towards any artwork I want to take into the meshfold narrative. And I don't mean that in the strictest of sense of world a word. word. I, I think in the end, abstraction can be immensely narrative. I think it is that the fact that the work of art doesn't give you everything at once. Um, And Mm -hmm. I don't mean to denigrate pop art, for instance, but a lot of pop art is is predicated on this concept that it strikes you at first glance, right? I mean, you, Mm -hmm. Marilyn Monroe in pink, straightforward. Marilyn Monroe, Mm -hmm. she's pink. I got it. Um, (laughs) I look for artwork that makes you look in more than one way. You obviously want a decorative quality, for want of a better word. You want something that pulls you in because visually it's attractive. But once Mm -hmm. I get closer, it has to continue speaking to me. And so I think I I look for things that have wall power, that speak to you from farther away, even if they're small, um, but where I also want to put my nose on it. If I come close Mm -hmm. and it doesn't continue to speak to me, that tends to be a, a no-no for me. I'll I, I walk away from it. And so I think when you come close, then you're in that technical aspect of printmaking or of drawing. We, Mesh shows a couple of artists who, are, who draw exclusively. Um, we work with the photographer, same parameters. I want to be able to walk up close and still be captivated by it. The initial impetus is probably a little bit of an, the, the wanting to be surprised. But I'm mm-hmm. willing to take something that doesn't surprise me a whole lot if once I get close, my eye wanders and continues to be delight- delighted by quality of line, by quality of contrast, of color, anything thematic. You know, it can be just something that's delightful because it's it's charming. <laughs>
1: and that's, yeah. that's quite a right. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that pure aesthetic pleasure is something that, since my husband is in graduate school right now, mm-hmm. I of course am a little bit in graduate school myself because that's how that works <laughs> when your person is there. And there's so much just rejection of pure aesthetic pleasure in academia, mm-hmm. which is so unfortunate because I think that the arts is people are trying to to, to quantify it and make it functional and. In this way that this to the standard to which sciences are held to and technology Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And so it has to be really have like this purpose, this this functionality in theory or in politics or something like that. And I adore work that does that, but it completely skips over just the joy that a beautiful piece can bring and the parts of you that it can open up that you don't have access to in other ways. And
0: yeah.
1: I love that there is a space that still celebrates that, which is in galleries, for sure.
0: Absolutely. Well, and, and and I would, I mean, because I'm sure you have a lot of listeners who are artists, I would remind you know, artists who listen to this that in the end, anything you add to the aesthetic enjoyment is, is bonus. No question about it. Mm-hmm. If you challenge me in other ways, that's wonderful. However, when it comes to art, the concept is still that it gets to live a life outside of the artist's creation in the eye of the beholder, the collector, the owner, mm-hmm. and you can only pull that owner in, generally speaking, with at least a little bit of of aesthetic environment. It doesn't mean that there are works of art that get sold purely on, on cognitive behaviors um, or, you mm-hmm. know, uh, for cognitive reasons but most art the overwhelming majority of art first needs to to attract and delight. And so mm-hmm. I think artists need to definitely keep that in mind before you go cerebral, remember you got to pull me in. You got to bring me into the fold. <laughs> <laughs> you got to captivate yeah. me. If I'm not coming close, there's no chance I will want to live with that work of art. So First, you got to pull me in, Mm -hmm. and then and then we can talk.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's in that in that pulling in, you know, that's not that doesn't just happen, you know, because it's a pastel sunset, right? Like that that kind of aesthetic pulling in can take many different forms.
0: Oh, absolutely! You can you can shock, you can you you can you can delight. It can be beautiful. It can be it can be repulsive. It can be all kinds of things, and no question, people have all kinds of perspectives. It doesn't mean that what Attracts me will attract somebody else, but you have to remember that visually, first of all, I have to want to come close. I have to want to walk mm-hmm. towards the work of art. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You yep. have to, like, there's artwork, like everything in this world is competing for attention that people have less and less. Yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> or or maybe not less, but less durable. <laughs> it's very yeah. short. It's very short-winded. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I feel like that's a really interesting point to segue into my next question, which is one that I find really fascinating. Which is the the future role of galleries and gallerists, and or the intermediary, or the art communicator, or however you want to to put it. I'd love to hear you speak to that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting
0: that you—I forget now where, how you phrase it, but that it's. It's not per se the gallery, it's the intermediary. That to me, you're, it kind of sheds a little bit of light on your question also. I mean, in my own mind, it's a tough question. I mean, so yeah. I guess all of us obviously consider a gallery to be a white or off-white space that's blank on which we hang works of art and people walk in and get to see if they like them and take them home if they do that clearly has disappeared or is disappearing fast. It doesn't mean that it's gone, but the realities of overhead of galleries, meaning the rent, the staffing, the framing, the advertising, and everything else that it takes to bring people in has made it almost impossible in most markets to, to do just that. And so I'll address that maybe first. I had this, very recently, there was this lovely little jewel box of a gallery called Printworks in Chicago. They didn't sell any prints, but they did sell, sell a lot of prints. They also did, showed a lot of people mm-hmm. with the drawings uh, and all manner of works on paper. It was a, a duo, two, two men who, who kept it and just, I mean, had wonderful programmatic ideas. They were there for maybe 35 or 40 years, well before I came to Chicago. And I remember seeing that space you know, probably late 90s, early 2000s, thinking if that ever becomes available, I'm jumping on it because I thought it was just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, the neighborhood has changed. They recently closed up shop. One of the men passed away a few years ago and then the, the man who remained decided to close up shop. I think it was last December. In January, mm-hmm. February, I went to see the space. It was very reasonable in price. It was, you know, I don't know if we get to talk about money on <laughs> on your podcast. Oh, yeah. So, it was I think the rent was twenty five hundred dollars plus some expenses. So yeah. say three thousand. So mm-hmm. I'm like eh, thirty five, forty thousand dollars for rent. But then you add the necessity to have probably at least almost full time staff. I, I, I can be there part of the time, but I can't be there all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you add another twenty five or thirty thousand for a part timer, and then you add advertisement and refreshments, and, and then you realize what well, would hold on, I'm going to be spending. $70,000, 90000 a year just to keep the lights on. That requires, I mean, the very least, like a couple hundred thousand dollars in sales on an annual basis to clear the overhead, you know. And so that was one of those moments where I realized, yeah, the world really has changed. Once upon a time, this would have been a non-issue. But then I looked at a neighborhood yeah. that was changed, where people didn't really go for gallery visits all that much anymore was it possible to do it? And the answer was probably no, unless it was just uh, you know, uh, a, an exercise in, uh, in futility. It just was not feasible anymore. So I think that has changed dramatically. It's very hard to do the traditional gallery thing. Um, and so I think the people who are interested in the art have to accept that many of the places they could have visited are no, are no longer out there. Does it mean that our trade... That intermediary of being an art dealer, you know, of being somebody who basically plays that middleman role is moot. I think, if anything, the answers more than ever were, were, were necessary. One of, the, mm-hmm. one of the things that I very quickly realized as I was rethinking launching Mesh was the fact that the Internet is a great fallacy when it comes to going directly to people. We think that because there's everything is at our fingertips, people will turn their attention towards it, but nothing could be further from the t- truth because there's all that competition for your attention. When I'm sending you mm-hmm. an email to say, come and see what we've brought together, you know, big corporations, and I won't name names, but big corporations are after that same attention. So mm-hmm. if my only way of reaching you is is the Internet, it gets very difficult to compete with people who have much deeper pockets than we little guys do. And so I think what we have to do is what you do with this podcast. We have to basically more than ever create compelling narratives. For one artist in their lonely corner, create that narrative and keep people's attention and keep people coming back is almost impossible. Mesh now represents mm-hmm. about 20 artists, even getting people to come regularly to the website or accept to give us an address so we can mail them something or come and see us in a show or allow us to send something to them on approval requires all this building of all these, these narratives, all these stories that eventually hook people in to say, yeah, should ask them to send something to me or I should see them in this show or I should go back to the website or pull up that email or, you know, pull out that letter they sent me because their attention is being pulled in all kinds of directions. So I think more than ever, having people who curate this artwork that puts them in a context and, and gives them a louder voice that transcends just the one image, I think is more than ever is valid. But how we do it and make it financially viable, that's another question altogether. And I don't know, I don't know that I have the answer to that yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, the truth yeah. is, uh, you know, and, and we spoke about Mesh now these last few minutes. I get to do what I do because I cobble together an income that's from multiple things. It's a secondary market that's still mm-hmm. strong. I consult for, for a couple clients. I'll do an appraisal when that falls into my lap. And then I also deal in contemporary artists' work. And so it's only through mm-hmm. a combination of all these things that it's, it's realistic. But it's not because trade has become tougher that it's become moot.
1: I think it's really significant when you were talking about that idea of opening up that little space and you were running the numbers for us. You didn't even calculate in your own pay. Oh, like,
0: <laughs> non-existent. No. Absolutely. No, and, and I mean the truth is all, all things of passion in life are about not counting. My wife is a, is a physician, is a doctor, If she added up the amount of time she spends on making people better versus what she gets paid, she would realize that there's many other ventures in life that would pay better. But that's just not why you do it, right? I mean, in the same way as I think we are in this world of art, because we need it. We know we need it. And so if Mm -hmm. we get to bring that to people who have that same priority of knowing they need to live with with beauty and aesthetic enjoyment in their lives, if we get to do it, we're, we're happy to do it. As long as we <laughs> pay the bills,
1: exactly. I mean, that's that's really it. It's the, it's that. All right, do we make it to next month? Okay, and I think that often people don't realize how many gallery owners who take home less every year than their receptionists.
0: Oh, absolutely. Oh, there's no question. There's many. There's many galleries who basically pay their staff more than they pay themselves. There's no question about that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. There's no question. Yeah. Because they're because they're in it for the love of it, and because they believe, like you and I do, that seeing work in person is the best and the greatest, and so important. Absolutely,
0: yeah, you're honored by it. Mm-hmm. You truly are.
1: So fighting fighting tooth and nail to keep a physical space alive or a print show alive, really? so people have that experience, working long hours and waking up early and going to bed late and sacrificing time with our family or time that could be spent with friends. It's yeah, yeah no. So I realize saying it now, I mean, it really sounds like I'm painting like a is <laughs> me picture, which I'm not meaning to like at all. But I, I just I do, I do think it is important that people, you know, understand that there is the the high echelon of the art dealing world. And there are one or two bad eggs like there are in any field. But 99 point nine percent of dealers oh fight a good fight you know, like yourself yeah. they are in it they yeah. are in it for the love yeah, and to be advocates for the artists yeah. yeah absolutely well I would I would love to hear kind of just things that you're looking forward to things that anything that's coming up on the horizon that's particularly exciting for you or for mesh oh um except,
0: well you know I think so one of the and I guess I'll kind of maybe Tie up this, this loose end when it comes to when it comes to the the future the future of galleries or the future of of dealership i guess the 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 one thing i I look forward to because i I'm, I'm living it already, but I think most people aren't in the art world I think today people will order all kinds of things on the internet like without batting an eyelash right i mean people get computers mm-hmm. shipped that are worth thousands of dollars or you know. Or, or their groceries, you know, order on the Internet. Yeah. Um, I am surprised at how approachable art has become on, on, on the web. You get to see all mm-hmm. kinds of things and read up and, and discover works of art fairly intimately on the Internet, very easily. And, well, and that's a pet peeve, but uh, many, many mm-hmm. uh, colleagues could still do better jobs at making art more accessible online when it comes to acquisition. There's many websites where you get to buy art easily. And mm-hmm. most, like all other internet ventures, will have like return policies, so you don't like it, you return it. I'm just amazed. Yeah. I'm amazed at the amount of accessibility there is to art, and yet how little of the the art trade has migrated online.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: I can convince people who already know me and trust me to order things on the two websites, Armstrong Fine Art or Mesh Art Gallery, um, without too much trouble. But convincing new buyers that it's okay to click Mm -hmm. and just say, it's going to show up in two or three days, and you get to enjoy it for a couple of days, and if it doesn't speak to you, you just take that return label and send it back to me. That has not yet happened. So I'm looking forward definitely to a day when people understand that is something that is part of the art trade but mostly, I think even before we get to that, and i just bring that up because we're wrapping up sort of the idea of dealing in art. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but what I also am amazed by is how much, I mean, that's, I'm a, I, I think a lot of people have a hard time allowing themselves to buy art. And I think people should just yeah. get over it. I mean, just get <laughs> over it. No, but it's truthfully, I mean, you're, I'm making it's you laugh, Miranda, I'm yeah. glad I am. But the truth is, people will spend thousands of dollars to go on vacation for a week right? People will spend 500 Mm bucks with four people in a restaurant to, you know, have a meal. And by two days later, two days later, they don't remember what they had. Did I have the cod? I don't remember. What did you eat? Artwork (laughs) that's worth a few hundred dollars sometimes languishes on, you know, on certain websites and it's readily available. And it's something once you bring it home, it's yours to have and to hold for all of eternity. I just... Mm-hmm. That one is one of those things. I look forward to the day people feel empowered <laughs> to do it and feel uninhibited to do so. I mean, I'll give you a, a, a for instance, and I'll, I'll give shout-outs to to a couple of people or a couple of outfits. I bought a a couple of prints from an artist I didn't know, and you might know her. I think she might be from sort of your former neck of the woods, Diane Sandel. Um, she okay. makes these yeah. these lovely uh, uh, line of cuts and. They're 100 bucks, 150 bucks. They're readily available. You send her an email and you send her some money and she sends them back to you. They're wonderful. I just looked at that and I thought, how is it possible that you know these editions are sold out? Um, I bought maybe five or six pieces from uh, Lunch Money Print. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They have, they have, they have this print exchange. And last year they had their first print exchange. Almost every single one of the images on there. Wouldn't want to take home. They're just just wonderful. And I ended up buying five or six. Pine Copper's Line's very own Paul de for instance, uh, participated yeah. in that print exchange. And I just couldn't believe that probably the most, I mean, unbelievable, intimate self portrait mm-hmm. for $200 was available on there and nobody had bought it. I just, that mm-hmm. to me is boggles the mind. So, I think what I I definitely look forward to people feeling, A, empowered to click, but also feeling uninhibited to do so. Just buy it. Just take it home. So that's sort of one of the things. But uh, when it comes to sort of personal uh, venues on Mesh, I guess on Mesh to answer that question, I'm definitely looking forward to um, having people discover more of, uh, of these artists whose work we've recently brought on. So I collaborate for MESH uh, specifically with uh, uh, a woman who is, in, uh, who is in Minneapolis and is sort of doing a lot of work for me in the shadows, but does great work. Her name is Jessica, Jessica Kruckerberg. So she's helped me kind of bring in new artists. So we have a, actually a woman who lives in Australia, in Melbourne, uh, but who is Czech, who does these amazing monotypes. Um, her name is Markita Kemp. So we've just put a few things on on the website of hers, and I've just taken a few of her works to to shows recently, and they've been selling really well. Um, They're amazing. They're very reasonably priced. So I'm definitely looking forward to featuring her work more. Probably the next person to be featured on our website uh, specifically will be a British artist by the name of Laura Boswell, who does uh, both amazing watercolor-based Japanese-style mukuhanga prints uh, that are really beautiful, but she also does line of cut and line of cut reductions. She makes these very small editions of these just very inventive landscape uh, images, and so we just started collaborating with uh, Laura, and she's just put out a book that I think it's coming out like today, yesterday, or tomorrow. I don't remember, and it's called Making Japanese Wood- Woodblock Prints. And it's actually I think the first one is already sold out before, <laughs> before it was published. <laughs> so it's definitely anticipated. So we'll probably feature her work and, and that book on the website uh, coming up. And then we have other, other artists whose work we haven't featured in detail that are also gonna be, uh, that are going to be focused on. Uh, for instance, we've started working with Dave Lefner, who makes these line-of- cutter reductions, uh, who's in L.A.-based and is sort of a sort of pop uh, art-inspired uh, artist. Um, but whose work is both beautiful from far away because they're larger, but then also delightful in their texture when you get closer up. Um, so, yeah, those are the things I'm kind of looking forward there. Yeah. Um, and then on the secondary market for Armstrong, there's a couple of artists whose work um, we're going to feature soon. One was amazing forgotten artist just because he was active in the 60s and then stopped making prints but he's still alive and kicking. He's a wonderful man uh, by the name of Gil Cowley. So if you go to Armstrong in the next few weeks, look out for Gil's work. Um, and then an artist who passed away a couple of years ago by the name of, of a French woman born in Belgium, Yannick Balif whose heirs I've contacted and have found. And so some of the work uh, from the estate is going to be featured on the website. So Some, some of these things are are sort of on my on my radar, um, and yeah. all kinds of techniques: some intaglio, some woodcuts, some linocuts, some etching. So, I like to keep it diverse.
1: Absolutely, and I'll I'll definitely put links to all of this in the show notes so people can can open up their app of choice and and take a little peek at, at these uh, these great so artists that you were mentioning. Yeah, of course, of course. So, I feel like I could I could just like open up. Um, a whole nother, you know, can of worms and, and go down just like another great little rabbit hole about that that time down the road when people will buy art the way they buy $60 steaks. Yeah. But <laughs> I think that... <laughs> we will um, get there. I, I think we can
0: convert people.
1: <laughs> I think so. It's so funny that that I I couldn't tell you... Why, other than just maybe my my unquashable optimism that <laughs> I do suffer from, that is just like I really do believe that there will be a time when people will will realize that that this that 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 if we keep doing the good work and 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 putting this information out there, that there will be a time when people realize. I can have art in my life that speaks to mm-hmm. me, that's mine, you know, for less than I paid for the shoes that I'm wearing. Yeah. And and I, I really look forward to that that time when prints sort of, you know, it, it, talking to people who have been in the business for decades, they talk about an ebb and a flow mm-hmm. to print collecting and and that when, and that they consider like, you know, we're kind of in a bit of an ebb. At the moment, but I, I, am, I think that it will come back as people yeah. realize and discover what it is and how accessible. it
0: well, is. Well, that's what it is. It, it is very accessible, And the truth is, I think so we, we can't over I mean, I think we, we, we cannot fail to overlook the fact that there's been a, a huge transformational shift in the way we consume information. I mean, the truth is until 25 years ago, you consumed information on paper. You looked at books. You looked yeah. at magazines. If it wasn't printed, you didn't get to discover it. Today, or in the last couple of decades, all of us switched to these screens. And these screens are mm-hmm. very good at, at capturing our attention. And like I've touched on, I think there's a lot of corporations that have obviously all the interest in the world of keeping you hooked. Um But I think as all of us mature with these technologies and the screens are obviously wonderful, they really do give us access to amazing amounts of information that we could only dream of accessing uh, a couple of decades ago. I think all of us are also going to have to learn to turn them off and walk away from it. And I think as that occurs, as all of us, you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners are already there saying, forget it, I'm leaving the phone home or I'm turning it off for the next few hours. Um, I think as that happens, we will go back to the analog, the analog world. We'll go to these, you know, sheets of papers, these canvases, whatever else has a, a physical presence in our lives, and we get to hold um, the same way we hold people who are dearly, you know, dear to us. I think that will happen. Mm-hmm. I think people will realize that the screens are an access point, but the real thing it is meeting with friends for a drink or for a dinner it is holding a work of art those are the real things the screen is only an access point it just gets you to those things that are real so i too am hopeful <laughs> i think your optimism yeah. is 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 warranted
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i love that i love that so much i wholeheartedly agree With all of it, Um, and I'm so glad that that you are on our side (laughs) in this, in this fighting the good fight. As it's, I I look forward to many more
0: decades of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think that is a beautiful place to close on, on this wonderful chat. I agree. And um, yeah, I, I hope that um, you can join me again um, sometime, you know, maybe like next year or something, and we can, we can check back in on all of the the progression, because I, I I have so much respect for what you're doing in this world and the the work that you put in, and I think it's like I said, we're we're lucky to have you on our side. Well, thank you. So. And the, the
0: feeling <laughs> is mutual. Thank you for putting these podcasts together. I I, uh, I was speaking to Laura Boswell, who does these instructional videos, um, and who mentioned that she she makes them uh, in part because she wants these places that are quiet, where she says. All I want mm. is for people to turn it on, and for the next fifteen or twenty minutes, they quietly see me at work. I don't even need to say much; anything. They just look at the at the gestures. Um, so your work is very much appreciated for that same reason, giving us these places where we get to quiet down and, and discover somebody else's life, um, and and let it enrich us.
1: Well, I guess we can we can sign off, and and we'll we'll. But I'll be in touch about the release of the podcast in the next couple weeks and everything and and thank you for for letting me steal a, an hour of oh, your time. Oh, thank you so
0: much. I'm honored to be on your podcast. I really am.
1: <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, we will definitely be in touch. I would love to. You. Thank you. Have a great well, night. Bye. Right. Bye. Well, that's our show for this week. And print friends, I can't think of better words to leave you on. Pine Copper Lime is gonna take a short, short break for the last two weeks of December. So let's all take Bernard's advice and put down our screens for the next little while. Go hold your friends, your family, and really look at and appreciate the art that we're lucky enough to have in our lives. I will be back in the new year with interviews from printmakers from all over the world doing something a bit beyond the expected. 2020 is looking bright. Lots of love to you, all the way from a sunny Sydney summer. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you January 1st.